Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Case study, London South Bank University. Hey, welcome everybody. Everybody hear me at the back? Yeah. So we're going to make a start on this session on retrofit. Um, and we've heard a lot today about retrofit first and the retrofit, retrofit agenda. Now we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into a case study. And I'm really hopeful that this session it's going to show another inspiring exemplar of how to do retrofit that is beautiful, saves carbon at the same time, and that the people using it, the, the, the students in this case, really love. So um, I'm, I'm chair, I'm uh, Tom Dollard, partner at Pollard Thomas Edwards, architect and head of sustainability. Um, today we've got uh, Nat Keast, associate director at Wilkinson Air, who's the architect on the scheme. We've got uh, Toby Reynolds, director of Eckersley O'Callaghan, the engineers on the scheme, and Lucy Townsend, head of sustainability, BDP, and looking after the sustainability of the um, scheme. So I think we'll get cracking um, with a uh, presentation. It's going to be about 25 minutes going through the, through the scheme, and then there's going to be lots of time at the end for Q&A discussion on, uh, on the details or, or the concept of retrofit in this environment. Um, so Nat, please take it away. Hi everyone. Um, so our project at LSBU, it's a central London site. Um, it's just north of Elephant and Castle. Um, and the main building that we were looking at is that it used to be known as the London Road building, just off London Road off Elephant and Castle. It's the largest, it's their largest academic building on campus. It actually housed about 20% of their academic um, space on their, on their central Southwark campus was in this one building. Um, but it didn't actually start life as a retrofit project. We were actually commissioned in 2016 to do a new build um, next to the London Road building. And the idea was that this new build was going to be the centerpiece of the university, the centerpiece of the campus, the heart of the campus. And it was a very ambitious scheme. Um, it included closing two of the roads on the site, uh, encompassing linking two new buildings, a seven-story building and a five-story building with a big undulating roof, a big sort of ambitious, sustainable agenda. Um, and everything about it was pretty progressive and, and positive thinking. Um, until after we submitted the planning application and got to stage three, the funding didn't come through. Um, there were some funding issues with the, the sale of the old library site, which they were looking to relocate. So unfortunately, and quite sadly at the time, the whole project got put on hold. Um, and that meant refocusing the energy and looking at the campus a bit in a, in a slightly different way. They still wanted to relocate the library, um, but they also knew they had to deal with this London Road building. Um, this is an article from the 1976 Architects Journal um, talking about the original building when it was opened. It's uh, about a four-story, sort of quite brutalist concrete structure. Um, and the sort of remark at the bottom there was, it was a bit of a mixed review, but it, it said it was a building that might be remembered and it could be loved. Um, from our experience talking to anybody that's ever worked or known that building, it wasn't loved at all. Um, the main comparison with the building was with a prison um, and the facades obviously very brutal, not very welcoming, very uninviting and, and nothing really but negative feedback from, from the people that use it and it was in a state of starting to 
to fall apart in certain areas and, and desperately needed looking at because, as I said, it's the biggest building they had on campus. Um, it was also very inward looking, um, lots of narrow corridors, which I kind of think is actually more like a mental asylum than a, than even a prison. Um, and and it, very traditional in its layout. Um, we, the building is formed around three large light wells, um, you can see on the plan here. And, and the classrooms are all very traditional classrooms or offices, cellular type spaces off those narrow corridors. And circulating and working your way around the building was really difficult to navigate. Um, but so the, re the refocus on the existing building it had a, a certain change in attitude of the client as well in that the new build was seen as a very sort of all bells and whistles, you know, let's put all our energy into creating this fantastic new space. And actually the attitude towards a retrofit was very different. And um, we added about just under a thousand square meters into this building. Um, and that was almost, it, wasn't, it was sort of deliberate because it actually meant that we didn't have to do any of the London plan requirements for carbon and energy use. Um, and the client was actually not particularly bothered about that, um, in that it was potentially a, a safer thing not to do that. And, uh, and it sort of highlighted the priorities of the retrofit and how different those priorities were actually from the new build. Um, and for example, we went for Briam very good, which you know, most of us know is not very good, um, but it was the sort of minimum, doing the minimum really. Um, this is a quick scope about what we did to the building. So effectively, we, we removed the existing facades, all generally lightweight aluminium curtain walling that came out. Um, and then we sort of nibbled away at the concrete, um, particularly on this London Road elevation you see on the front side here, which was effectively concrete sheer walls apart from a long strip of narrow windows at high levels. So we opened that up, um, took away a, a bit of slab around the entrance, uh, and, and tried to do the minimum, but just to open it up slightly. Um, and then we took out those structures, including the lightweight roofs, which were over two of the outer light wells, um, and then put in new structures. Um, so we infilled the two outer our light wells with new floors and high-level roofs above, and a new atrium uh, on, the, on the front of the building here where the entrance was going to be located. Um, so those sort of subtle structures went into the, slotted into place, um, and then we rewrapped the whole building with you know, a much more highly insulated envelope. So that's a sort of simple, in simple terms, what we did. Um, in terms of the facade, what we, the whole approach was about trying to do the minimum to interrupt with the existing structure. So we took off, as I said, the existing facade and put in some minimal supports for the new facade, but tried to open it up. So we took away some of these, up, the existing upstands to open that up and, and have a much different presence on the road. Um, and so the top two floors is where the library is located, and that was framed with these large glazed elements with the large um, perforated shading panels, um, with the lower level having big glazing windows into the gym. Um, and so there's a bit of a before and, a, and an after shot to sort of you know, indicate the transformation of the facades. Um, the entrance facade, again, in a similar way, trying to just take away the existing windows, do a simple framing system to support the new facade and create a much more civic appearance to the building. Um, we used lightweight GRC to sort of try and keep things relatively light but still have a civic appearance um, but not have too much load on the new structure. Um, and 
try to totally transform the outside of the building and then its impact on the community. In terms of the inside of the building, it's sort of split on two levels. So the top two floors are where the new library is located. Um, and the bottom two floors is where there's lots of large lecture theatres, large sports hall, catering facilities, those sorts of things that come together to support the students and, and bring, bring them together within a hub. So this section is the existing section at the top, which shows those existing light wells and then how they are infilled on the lower section with the section infilled above the sports hall on one side and above the lecture theatres on the other. And so the idea was to try and keep the big spaces as they were, refurbish, refreshen those big spaces, but totally open up the upper levels particularly. Um, and the other part of it was looking at the circulation diagram, um, not relying on the escape stairs for the circulation, but actually introducing a new atrium concourse stair that helps you navigate around the building, improving the access in the building, the the building initially had one lift, which was on the opposite side of the building to the, lift, to the entrance. Um, so accessibility was extremely poor. So addressing those key circulation issues was another key part of, of transforming the project. Um, and and, and doing with a, uh, having a feature wall with that staircase was, was part of that. Um, and then in terms of that library space, as I said, the key part of it was opening up that floor plate as much as possible, removing all those internal partitions that divided it into cellular spaces, creating a much more open plan library and study learning environment, which is much more in keeping with you know, modern ways of teaching and learning rather than having the cellular approach of offices and classrooms. Um, and effectively, this whole top floor was opened up and having the ability to effectively see through from one facade all the way through to the other through a series of open spaces with surrounding smaller group rooms for you know, things like Teams meetings and, and, and breakout seminars, um, and transforming the library into uh, an attractive facility that actually will make students want to come to the university as opposed to the existing building. Um, so that is a summary of our transformation. And Toby's going to go talk a bit more about the structure detail. Oh, you all right? Sorry. <laughs> Not solid. So, yeah, looking at a few of the structural interventions in a bit more detail and, and how we approached that, we kept pretty much all of the main concrete frame. As Nat said, we took out upstands that you get in a lot of 70s concrete buildings. But we, and we took out the area of concrete around the lobby and opened that up. But otherwise, we kept the concrete frame pretty much intact. All the new interventions are done in steelwork, uh, which always feels like, well, felt in here, they're like the appropriate material, mainly around the perimeter, the facade, new framing, uh, the light well infills, which added the new floor area into the building, the new canopy and the, and the circulation. And we tried to keep all those elements, you know, two elements that, that made a difference to the building. You know, we really tried to keep them discreet and focused. Here's a kind of construction shot of one of those light wells. For structural reasons, we did some relatively interesting things in hanging those infills from the roof level. That was to do with movement joints in the building and to do with keeping column-free areas uh, down below. But it had the effect that all of our works were, were up in the air. We did no groundworks. We did no like foundation modifications to this building to keep to keep these put these new additions in. 
Staircase is fairly straightforward, but it's often the staircases that really change the feel of the building. Again, all in steelwork, but you've the big atrium staircase coming up, little infill staircases here that change the way in which people use the building. The concrete frame built in you know, the 1970s is a waffle construction that uh, really actually quite materially efficient in its use of concrete compared to modern flat slab construction. Uh, it's on a big grid, 11 by 8 and a bit metres. So a really nice flexible frame in which to like think about new layouts and, and, and new configurations in the space. We were very lucky. The, there were an incredible array of record drawings of the building. We had both architectural layouts, but we also had record drawings of pretty much every bit of reinforcement in this building. And that enabled us to look back at the load capacities uh, of the existing frame, compare that to the new loadings that we were putting in the building. We could back analyze the existing frame, and that really enabled us to f hone in on the areas that needed strengthening to accommodate changes loadings. Things like library storage affected the loading, the blue roof on the, that we put in on the roof, the chiller loads on the roof, and those were areas that ultimately we had to strengthen the concrete frame. And we did that all through carbon fiber. Um, so carbon fiber wrap here in the waffle, strengthening for shear purposes, carbon fiber plates added across beams and, and below beams uh, to strengthen you know, things for, for bending forces. And overall, we, we kind of strengthened about 10 to 15% of that concrete frame uh, you know, through this method. And once intermittent painted, then decorated to the untrained eye, that's pretty invisible within that building. The embodied carbon data, I think, says kind of what we all know, that on a per meter squared basis, retrofit you know, gives very low values. You know, probably the interventions we did are relatively high in carbon in their small little areas, but spread over what is really quite a large footprint of the building. You know, very low values down here in the 50 kgs of CO2 a meter squared. On the left, for comparison, the embodied carbon figures in the equivalent for building that new frame now. So that's still quite a good value for a concrete frame, but we're, you know, the retrofit approach, we're about a fifth of that value. We're probably about a third of what it would be if we built a big new timber frame. So, you know, uh, really good performance in that regard. Yeah, so then just kind of picking up on that carbon story, um, so as Toby mentioned, obviously there was loads of benefit in actually retaining some of the existing structure. Um, and we started to use this project to look at quantifying, you know, what are the benefits between doing a refurbishment project versus a new build. So this chart here just starts to show broken down by different element, um, looking at what that percentage reduction is through actually doing a retrofit project. Um, and you can obviously see some of those bigger reductions um, start to come in those structural elements and then looking at what your overall picture is and which showing that there's about a 40% saving in embodied carbon through doing a retrofit versus if we were to demolish this building and rebuild. And then this shows when we start comparing that to benchmarks. So in the industry, there's a lot of benchmarks against new buildings, what should be the embodied carbon figures. So Letty, Reba have those. There's not as much around kind of refurbishments. 
um, but it is worth again just showing what that comparison was. So this was just a bit below 400 um, kilograms CO2 per meter squared. Um, and when we're comparing that to what the kind of Letty 2030 and Reba benchmarks are, we can start to see that there's definitely a benefit um, in looking at how we can repurpose and adapt existing buildings and structures uh, and make it positive. And so that chart also just starts to show you again the breakdown um, of different materials used as well. Um, and again, where those kind of biggest, because a lot of the um, carbon came from the actual MEP systems, because we weren't having to make, um, so from a structural point of view, we know that in a new building, structural elements are actually a major component of the embodied carbon. So we start to see that shift because we were retaining that, that actually the MEP, because we were putting new MEP into the building, then became kind of the biggest percentage um, of embodied carbon. But then we wanted to do that because from an operational, it wasn't just about the embodied, we wanted to look at the whole life carbon impact for the building. So as part of that, we needed to look at operational efficiencies. Um, so there was lots of benefit around you know, improving the facade, improving the air tightness of the building that allowed us to drive down the energy demand. Um, and then by putting new, more efficient systems in, we could actually start to look at what that impact was on the operational energy. So we looked at comparing what the existing building performance was versus um, the refurbished building, and we can start to see um, that there was a reduction of about 60 kilograms CO2 per meter squared by doing that. Um, but it wasn't just about kind of embodied carbon, so there was lots of other sustainability initiatives. Although the BRIAM rating um, was quite low from a ambition, actually what we did was try and look at holistically how could we bring sustainability into the project. Things around, you know, bringing natural daylight into the spaces, looking at attenuation, so sub-strategies, um, looking at sustainable transport, how could we provide the students, you know, more cycle spaces, um, and then also just looking at where we were putting new material in, how could we do that, that there were healthy materials um, as well as low carbon materials. And it was award winning, so you know, the story of this is that we don't have to go ahead and build brand new um, you know, buildings, we can do really clever initiatives with the existing building stock that we have, and those can still be award winning from a sustainability point of view and really just highlighting that you know, the embodied carbon was the big story for this because we really got to demonstrate um, how much we could save through looking at that adaptive reuse of the existing building. Um, and, and for me, it, it was, there was a certain irony that we won this award given the lack of ambition earlier in the project for actually being a sustainable project. Um, and I particularly like the bit about winning it through minimal intervention, because it sounds like we didn't really try. And in some ways, it sounded that that was kind of true, because it was always going to be a retrofit project. But um, it just goes to show the benefits of, of th that you can have. Um, the other key benefit was the cost. And compared to uh, the projects on the bottom here are very sort of exemplar hub projects, so they're not necessarily fair sort of comparisons, but just to give a bit of a, uh, an impression, I mean, the cost of this project was just over £2,000 a square metre, which compared to some other you know, new build type of projects is, is quite a different you know, ballpark. Um, but in the end, we also think that 
we actually achieved a lot of the objectives that we set out through the new build project. You know, in terms of creating a centerpiece, in terms of creating a heart of the university and the campus, the building actually fulfills a lot of the functions. And we're trying to do a bit of a social value study, um, post-occupancy evaluation study, to try and quantify some of that data. Um, so that was all sort of very positive. But we also wanted to just be a bit honest and, and not necessarily sugarcoat the whole process because it, is, it was very difficult, this process, actually. And we did end up with a project which was over the budget and it was over the program. Um, the, we went down a traditional route contractually, which some people might say we're, we were crazy to do that. Um, but it actually, there were, there were some benefits. Um, but there were a lot of variations. And obviously, a retrofit project is not without risk. Um, we just wanted to highlight maybe some of those sort of key lessons about the process that we've gone through, painfully in some cases, which we could pass on. I mean, the first one was about the understanding of the survey process. And, and this was vital, and I think partly because of the way that carbon fiber is a relatively new product, there was maybe not the full understanding from the contractor and, and possibly the client team about how that intensive survey process to validate the existing structure needed to be done. Um, the structure, for example, the contractor, for example, threw away some of this slab, which was meant to be tested to test the strength, the strength of the concrete. There's little things like that which added quite a lot of impact and complexity to the to the program. Um, and I think as sorry, just uh, as we go through, th as things like carbon fiber become more commonplace, those lessons will will be learned. I think. Um, the second sort of key point really was discovering things. So, for example, we found that when we removed the existing walls, the screed, existing screed levels were way out between one side of the partition and the other. And we were looking to try and retain the screed. We had to remove it all. Um, and in the end, we, we did a bit of, because again, maybe partially because we were in control, being a, a traditional contract, we checked, played around with the finishes, changed some of the finishes to try and compensate and offset the cost. But the key lesson here is that we, you do need contingency. You're going to find surprises. And making sure that you have that correct level of contingency planning would be another you know, key consideration. Um, the next one, again, through surveys, we found that some of the structures around areas we were looking to retain needed work. That also meant that we had to disrupt these areas, which we didn't want to do. Um, but again, in being in control of the contract variations, we were, tried, we were able to sort of manage that with the client, change the brief, adapt that slightly, and work with them to, to try and minimize the damage, I guess, in terms of program and contract. Um, so that was another sort of key lesson. And then the last one was, we, we, there were certain areas of the building where we didn't think we needed to do that much. And the kitchen was the prime example, which is sort of illustrated in the drawing on the left. Um, we were told it was recently refurbished. It doesn't really need that much work. But as they started to look at the services in more detail, once the building is vacated, the validation process showed that the services just needed to be completely replaced, really. And that affected the finishes. There was water ingress as well, which wasn't properly managed. So actually, by trying to retain a space and save some money, it ended up costing money. And I think the lesson here is that actually the more certainty you can put into your design of a retrofit, 
the more you're going to know where you are in terms of cost and contract and the process. So they were just some of the sort of key lessons we took away. Um, and so we're happy for questions. Now to, we're now going to switch to um, the Q&A. So please do get your questions up on Slido. Um, as, and then I'll take them on. They come through magically on this iPad. I've got a few questions to kick us, kick us off. Um, and it's really, I, I guess it's to, to the whole panel, but pr primarily um, uh, to Nat, but by all means, st uh, step in. If this, this was obviously designed five, six, seven years ago. So there's been quite a lot of change in regulation and landscape around retrofit first and uh, both from carbon, but also uh, quite a few other regulations. So what would you change if you were designing this now? Um, I think th the main thing which I find slightly disappointing is it, it was the, or the operational energy side of things. And I think going back five years, one thing that this building has is a gas boiler. And it was just at that sort of threshold, I think, where now you, you definitely look at heat pumps. There's the space on the roof for it. It could, it could happen. Um, so that sort of feels like a slightly missed opportunity as much as anything. Um, that, that, that sort of side of things feels like a sort of a shortfall in the project, you know, when you look at it from a whole. So sure. I think that's probably the main thing. There's, there's always lots of little things. <laughs> um, but generally, that, that, that would be the main priority that I think we'd look at. Uh, Toby and Lucy, have you got anything to add in terms of what's changed and what, what you'd be doing on new or retrofit projects now? I don't know whether we would have done this with the client LSBU that we had, but uh, definitely the building in a, in a big, robust, four-story concrete frame, uh, I think a more commercial approach would have tried to add floors on top of the building. Um, and I think you would have tried to maximize uh, you know, the capacity of the columns and the foundations and the geotechs and, and things more than, than we did, actually. We, we, we added a relatively modest amount of additional area in, in filling those light wells. Um, and you know, maybe if you took the university estate as a whole and you looked at those opportunities of retrofit as a whole estate, you might, you, you might, as a university body, shift your priorities to putting more volume onto this building than we actually did. And maybe that would free up, you know, take away from the need to build other new buildings in other places. Um. And then, yeah, I was just going to add, I mean, agree with Nat about the kind of operational side of, um, you know, having gas boilers as opposed to maybe an electric-led system. But I also think as well, just in the time since that project started, from an embodied carbon point of view, we know a lot more about materials and what the impact of certain materials are. So I think what, whereas we saved embodied carbon just through things like retaining material, actually, I think now we have a lot more understanding of the new materials we then were putting in how we could actually drive down the carbon of those as well and i think just that just wasn't there maybe you know four years ago and i think all of that materials database is getting better and better and epds etc yeah, yeah I, th I think there's been a huge shift in in terms of the embodied but there's, there's a question also leading on from that from carolina who's asking about the circular economy side so both using reused materials possibly, or this idea of trading materials across estates. Do you, think, uh, do you think you can apply that to possibly next university projects or even within the estate as it is? Yeah, and it's something, I mean, we're talking about a lot of kind of retrofit projects, and I think 
as an industry, we need to start working together more because what we found is storage a lot of the time comes up as an issue. So, you know, we can say, okay, actually, when we're looking at existing buildings, one of the key things is we should be going into that building and have a look, doing a, you know, pre-demo or pre-refurbishment audit, seeing what potentially could be reused within the building and on site. But actually, is there opportunities for the construction industry to come together a bit more, share knowledge, and where there's, you know, maybe a project going on down the, down the road, can materials be taken out? Because what we find a lot of the time is, especially in London, there's constrained sites. So yes, you can take out material, but then where do you store that material until you actually need it? But I think it's, you know, everyone's now talking about circular economy, which is great. I think we just need to get some of the actual processes a bit better defined to make it work in practice. Yeah, sure. And we've got a couple of very specific ones um, uh, here on the foundations, first of all, so one for Toby. So were the foundations stre strengthened to accommodate the extra load of the infills? You said there wasn't, but... No, no, they weren't. The, the building sat on unreinforced and reinforced pad foundations. It sits over the top of the Bakerloo line, actually. But um, uh, the, the new areas, the, we put about 1,000 metres squared in of new area, actually relatively modest in terms of the scale of the overall building. Um, and, yeah, we didn't do any foundation work uh, under the core of the building. We did a little bit where we extended the facade out from, from the existing footprint, but, but none within... Uh, the main building. There was capacity, not particularly in the floors, they were pretty optimised in their original design in 1970s, um, but there was capacity in the concrete columns and to some degree in the pad foundations below. But, um, Great, and uh, I think there's a really good question here from Gregor, who's, uh, yeah, ch I guess challenging this idea that just because it's retrofit means it's good. You've got You've got loads of saving, 40% just by going the retrofit route, and therefore does that stop you going further, looking at elements, either the glazing, the insulation, and really pushing the elements? Did, did you find that on this project, or, or possibly you know, other projects going forward? Did we, do we just stop at retrofit and accept that 40%, or should we be going to really optimizing the elements, you know, and both in terms of embodied, but also operational? Um, so it's, did you look at that, or was it really...? Uh, what I found is, I think, it took... Until we did the analysis a little bit on the whole body, uh, you know, the whole enabled carbon story, we, for me, that highlighted the fact that, actually, there's these huge other areas that need to be addressed. <laughs> you know, we've done pretty well on the, on the structural side, obviously, but, actually, look at the, you know, the mechanical ventilation stuff. It's massive quantities, and... You know, and, and then you have the glazing and the cladding, as, and obviously, as well as the major factors. For me, it, it, take, it took this as a bit of a case study for me going forward to start to address those things. Because I don't think, to be honest, five years ago, they were not being addressed in the same way. But I think it's doing a sort of analysis now where you actually are looking at what are the big contributors that highlights it now. I think it's about getting the, the timing of that assessment in at the right time. Yeah. And still, I think we're not really, as an industry, doing embodied carbon circular economy statements at early enough. We've, I don't know when you did the, the assessment on this project. I, I'm assuming it was relatively late. Yeah. And then you've kind of made the big decisions about structure, MEP. It's not relatively... You're then talking about a few percent shaving off. So yeah. just wondering... Um, yeah, when, when would you do it now on a project going forward? Would it, would it be that early on? Is there the, are there the fees there to do that? You know, I would always say, you know, we always advocate doing right, at, even at stage two. 
So you can start to look at kind of, you know, two or three different options. Because, yeah, you're right, absolutely. What I think when the industry first started looking at embodied carbon, it was a bit more of a quantification piece. So you would do a project, quantify what your embodied carbon is. It's very much actually what you should be doing is looking at your options, testing those options, and using that embodied carbon analysis to inform the design decisions. So even at stage two, you know, you don't have the level of detail, but you might say, okay, as an order of magnitude, we know that that option potentially could be 30% yeah. lower carbon than that option. So actually going forward into the more detailed design, that's the option. Then we can start testing a bit more at the elemental level. And I think one of the key things as well is the MEP. I think everyone now is, you know, understands maybe from a structural point of view what the better materials are. I think where we need to catch up is still how do we get low embodied carbon MEP systems into buildings and also how do we actually just remove the need for material. That's the other key thing because we can talk about low carbon materials but actually if we just don't need that material that's the best, you know, lowest mm. form of carbon at all. Yeah. I mean, we're doing it more and more at the, right at the beginning of projects. Mm. And certainly by stage two, you have a good idea about where you are with different options. I think the thing I find sometimes which is a challenge is, is the data and the benchmarking. You, you have in your mind what's going to be good, and actually sometimes it doesn't turn out to be that. Um, it feels like there could be, there needs to be a bit more of a, a, a database of, of what products, what, you know, we should be able to know like that what cladding system is going to be better than another. And you, sometimes you think you know, but actually the detail sometimes shows you something different depending on you know, the whole build-up of the whole system. Um, so I think until we get a bit more consistent in terms of data, it's, it's, that's, that's the thing that needs to crack it. Yeah, I agree. And uh, Carolina has got another question following up on the circular economy. It's really, it's, it, have, you, have you done an assessment post the design to see a circularity assessment or is there anything there that you can, you can retrospectively say we use this percentage of reused material or, or is that not something you've, you've been doing? Oh, maybe like, we didn't do a formal circularity assessment on this yeah. project but I'm sure there's examples of kind of okay. where we you know use the circular economy approach but yeah we didn't do and I think that's probably something you know even as we say lessons learned going forward you know on other projects yeah. we are now starting to do those circularity assessments sure. that actually are quite useful to inform decisions. Right, so um, on the subject of lessons learned, there's a question here, anonymous question, saying, what is the plan for POE and how is the building doing from an operational energy perspective? So we're hoping to do a POE sort of in the autumn, which will be capturing the first 12 months of the building operating. Um, to be honest, I'm very keen to know what the operational energy side of things is because it feels like partly because we didn't have a sort of full part L type of submission because of the retrofit manner of it and we didn't you know, need require that for building regs. I think there, there is a, a bit of an inconsistency in, in terms of the estimated data so we're really keen to actually know what the operational carbon story is going to be. Um, and also start to look back and, and maybe do a bit of an exercise where we have some real data. We can start to sort of compare with, you know, with the embodied carbon data that we've sort of saved effectively and, and do a bit of a comparison about how the operational carbon and the embodied carbon sort of offset each other effectively, which mm. is sort of happened on this project with having, you know, not having particularly ambitious operational carbon targets. Mm. So, Talking more generally about like refurbing concrete frames, I mean, in theory, 
in refurbing a concrete frame, putting a new facade on it, there shouldn't be a difference really between what we can achieve in terms of operational energy of a, a retrofit project compared to a new build. Effectively, the only difference is the concrete frame or you know, equivalent is retained. You know, in, in, it makes a difference, obviously, in projects where you're changing windows and keeping the existing walling systems or, um, and you're getting a, a difference in performance for the facade. But you know, in theory, if you're stripping a building right back to the frame, right, you know, thinking forward on, on other projects, you should be able to match the operational performance yeah. of a new build. That, that, that yeah. shouldn't be a kind of, you know, the debate of, yeah. of, of you, you've, got, you've done a refurb, you've lowered your embodied carbon, but you've got a higher operational. That, you know, yeah. that, that shouldn't that need to be the debate. Yeah. And I think that's where I have this slight frustration with this project, that it doesn't have the quite full narrative. There's a, there's a bit of a gap, which, you know, talking to people about it would be nice to close, but... Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what sharing case studies like this is so important to understand. You're not going to have everything right on, on one project. It's about what did you get right and how, how can we replicate them. And just on the POE, I think from our experience uh, doing that on, our, on PTE's projects, going speaking to the occupiers, speaking to the, the, the students in this case, the FM team, they'll be able to tell you, you know, doing a basic survey, and then you'll have to do a display energy certificate, they'll be doing a display energy certificate. That's a pretty good, it's based on metered data, pretty good assessment of how you're doing. So um, there are some simple ways of doing POE. You don't necessarily have to do a full um, academic review. Um, I'm just going to take one or two more questions, um, and then I think we'll go to final remarks. So. Yeah, this is, this is, I actually wanted to ask this question as well, around the traditional contract and how you, you know, ha well, first of all, how, how did that decision come about? Who made that decision? And second of all, do you think that had any particular bearing on the success of the retrofit process? Um, the, the, the decision came from the university. They had never, the, the, the people there at the time had never really seen any benefit from doing a two-stage tender process. They never felt that they actually really gained that much from the contractual, from, you know, from the contractor and their input between stages one and two. They just never really felt they'd seen that before on a DMB. And so they were quite strongly in favor of doing traditional. And, and I think in some ways, I would have liked this to be more of a DMB route. It would have potentially been a simpler sort of approach. But I think there were benefits in doing the traditional approach, as I said, in terms of just trying to keep in control of the things that needed to change. Um, and that was definitely a big benefit. I mean, in terms of the, the cost, I mean, we talked about it went over budget by, well, I think, whatever it was, 20% or so. Um, not and That doesn't include the contingency, but... There's a sort of feeling that actually, if it was a D&B project, the, the, the cost, that 20% risk, would have been added on to the cost anyway. So that, that that doesn't necessarily make it that bad from that point of view. Um, so I think that I think the the main thing from the traditional point of view is is, is that program element. I think I think what that was lacking was that. Uh, we, we felt quite early on that the contractor didn't necessarily get their program right. Um, and I think other forms of contract probably would have helped, helped with that. Um, whereas it, 
it meant quite a lot of arguments about program, which you know would have been better not to have, obviously. Great. I think I think as you know, there's, there's development and knowledge learning from the contractor side about how to deal with, with big retrofit schemes, and, and that will only improve. There's, at the minute, there's the kind of unknown about surveys and the timing of that. You need, you need an unoccupied building to really do the level of strip out of surveys that inform all of the design and, and all of the risk. And that, you know, that sits a little uncomfortably once you're on site. You've got a contractor there charging you prelims and you're talking about surveys and design changes. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that's difficult. That maybe sits more comfortably in a two-stage tender process. Yeah. But, it, but it only does that if the client can vacate the building in time yeah. that it can sit there for a six-month period while you do all those surveys. You know, the ideal would be contractor comes on, strips out, you pause, you do surveys, you do material testing, you, you, know, you think about your circularity and, and reuse, and you do all of that, and, and you finalise your design, and then you go back onto site and do work. But that rarely, you know, either in an education context where you're, you've got student numbers and, and term dates, or in a commercial context where you've got rents, that's, you know, that rarely happens. So the contractual difficulty is in the overlap of kind of, um, you know, design, survey, investigations and things. And that, I think, kind of currently exists yeah. regardless of the German yeah. group. I'm, I'm gutted to leave it on a, on a traditional con <laughs> contract <laughs> question, but we're going to have to wrap up there. We should have, we should have gone on to the, the beauties of brutalist architecture, <laughs> but we'll, we'll leave that for another day. Um, please join me in thanking the uh, speakers in the traditional way and um, yeah have a great lunch break thank you